This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our guest today, uh, Jeff Cox. He is a member of the Paul Brunton Philosophic Foundation. Uh, he is also uh, retired as the co-owner of Snow Lion Publications. And we'll discuss many things today, but uh, one of our focuses will be the book, The Short Path to Enlightenment, Instructions for Immediate Awakening by Paul Brunton. Uh, thank you so very much, Jeff, for taking the time to come on with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm happy to meet both of you. Uh, Jeff, um, this is a slightly unusual circumstance for us because um, it came about when uh, we received copies of uh, a book, The Short Path to Enlightenment, uh, by Paul Brunton. And I'm very familiar with Brunton's work. I wrote about him in American Veda, so I thought this is a good opportunity to get somebody on to speak about Brunton because he's an important figure and this most recent publication uh, in particular. So um, we're talking to you about Paul Brunton mainly, but let's begin uh, by telling the uh, listener something about you and your own spiritual uh, history, how you came to uh, be involved with the Paul Brunton legacy, and then we can explain who Brunton was. Okay, sure. Well, um, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and um, I was a kind of a, a religiously Christian, religiously oriented person, and I, um, I, you know, had a lot of uh, devotion. I would say. But, um, you know, this pretty much was a church-going and enthusiastic uh, follower of Jesus and so on. At some point in my college career, I had an urge to go to Europe. I had not been overseas before. And uh, during that trip, I um, was in Switzerland and talking with some friends of friends. And they were telling me about the ghosts in their barn that they were had a house adjoined to a barn as many farmers do in um in europe and um i started asking questions and they said oh well you should read this book edgar casey's there is a river i don't know if you two have mm, heard i remember of edgar that casey. Mm -hmm. yeah and it was basically a biography about edgar casey and his work and in the book he uh, i mean he's it was of course he gave all his information while in sleep trance but he said um, about the importance and usefulness of meditation and yoga. And also, the main thing was is that the divine was something that could actually be known or realized. And that just like set off a, it was like a lightning bolt in my psyche. And um, I knew I was changed after having that bit of knowledge, which is not something I ever got from my religious upbringing. I went back to Columbus afterwards, and I thought, well, I need to sign up for a yoga class. And the person that was the teacher of that class is presently the chair of the Paul Brunton Philosophic Foundation. Yeah. Uh, it was a woman named Clea Rudolph, and I, was, I started uh, asking her a lot of questions, and she said, well, you know, if you really want to understand these things, you should read Paul Brunton. And... Um, so there was a group in Ohio, and I began to go to that group. And eventually, um, 
a student of Paul Brutton's named Anthony Damiani came at the request of the group requested if Paul Brutton could come. And he said, no, but I'll send my student Anthony to you. And Anthony lived in uh, near Ithaca, New York, where I am now. And he did come and he spent a weekend and then another weekend and not, you know, would come a few times a year and talk to us about philosophy, spiritual philosophy. Uh, I was very impressed with him, and uh, when I finished my college work, I had to make a choice between for going on with a, my, you know, like to get a PhD in what was going to be marine geology, or come to Ithaca and be part of a group here. Um, he, Anthony Damiani had classes at a store called the American Brahmin Bookstore in Ithaca, New York, and there were quite a few Cornell-related people that kind of found their way into the store, including my future wife and other business partner uh, that worked with me, both of them actually, at Snow Lion Publications. So I moved here because of my enthusiasm for the study. I basically had a deep urge to want to understand spiritual philosophy, and I thought this was going to be my best opportunity. And other things about life had sort of lost their interest for me. Um, I came to understand later that Paul Brunton actually had been at the church that I was in in Ohio, hmm. and it was called the First Community Church. It was a congregational church, and he went there to meet a very special minister named Roy Burkhart. Um, Paul Brunton often moved around um, based on sort of some inner guidance or intuition or whatever he would he felt drawn to meet this person and to give him some instruction in self-healing. He says, you, you give of yourself all the time, but you don't take care of some of your own basic needs. And he gave him an exercise that really revolutionized his ability to even do more for people and keep him healthy at the same time. Um, but it was just kind of curious to me, like, here I learned... You know, I, I, it was like a full circle thing. Mm. Uh, and at the time that I went to Switzerland, that's where PB was living. He retired to Switzerland in 1966 or so. He went into semi-retirement. Um, so I was here and studying with Anthony, and he decided to build a center called Wisdom's Goldenrod. He owned a number of acres on Lake Seneca. This is grape country up here. We have a lot of many, many wineries now in the Finger Lakes area. And people mm -hmm. come here to be on the wine trail. But anyway, he has some land, and some of it was grapes, and some of it wasn't. And he, he donated like seven acres of land. And our, our, the group of people that had grown up around him at the bookstore uh, used their own time and money to to build what ended up being four buildings over about a five-year period in the 70s. And I was um, one of the first people to live there. I lived there for five years in kind of uh, semi-retreat, although there were a lot of people coming and going, and we had classes almost every night. Mm -hmm. um, and there was, you know, daily meditations. It was a kind of semi-monkish style of living for mm -hmm. me. And I really felt like that provided a foundation that has sort of carried me along through the rest of my years. I'm right. 71 now. Right. Very, Je very Jeff, if I could ask, uh, you mentioned that uh, you, you or someone told you about uh, uh, learning more about uh, Paul Brunton, and uh, you came back uh, to Columbus, I believe, and uh, took a yoga class, the, the person heading up that yoga class 
was somebody that uh, is now on the board with you. Uh, yes. So you, you, it seems you were going, you had some insight, and then you went for something experiential in terms of taking yoga. Uh, so subsequent to that, in your pursuit of, of, of understanding more about Paul Brunton and spirituality, uh, were you mostly studying? Was it mostly intellectual? Or were you engaged in a number of uh, uh, spiritual uh, exercises or techniques? You mentioned where you were spending part of the day in meditation. What was, uh, what was the uh, techniques or uh, uh, spiritual practices, that, if any, that you engaged in at that time? And, and did you also yeah. balance that out with intellectual understanding of what you were experiencing? Yes. Um, so while I was living at the center, we call it, um, I was probably sitting three hours a day or so. Um, you know, dawn, noon time, and in the evening. Mm-hmm. The evening meditation Anthony would would um, attend with all the other students that would be coming in for class at night. Uh, so my technique was mostly mantra meditation, you know, the famous mm-hmm. Tibetan Om Mani Padme Hum mm-hmm. is the one that I was focused on, and I did that fairly, in, you know, intensely. I was really trying to develop intense concentration, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think it served me well. Um, another practice we did, which was actually direct from Paul Brunton, he talks about it in his book, The Wisdom of the Overself, was a meditation on the sun. And what you basically do is every every day for a year, if you commit to the practice, you um, are meditating either at the time of sunrise or sunset or both, if you wish, mm-hmm. but at least one of them every day. And it's um, you sit in the style of a, an Egyptian. You know, these pictures of the Egyptians sitting in a on a seat with their hands on their legs and they're looking forward. It's um, an opening to the the light behind the light, as it were. You know, the sun is a symbol of the divine mind, and the well, let's say more than a symbol, it's the embodiment of the divine mind in a specific focus. And um, you're opening to the the self behind the sun, which is actually the same as the self within us, if we're going to use the word self or over self in PB's language. And there becomes um there's a Something about the nature, there's a pause in nature, and this is why he particularly was interested in sunrise-sunset times. You're probably familiar, many people are, at least the quiet that comes over the land when mm-hmm. the sun's going down. or some, In the morning, it's more like a coming to life, but there's a, a kind of infusion of... Um, a kind of uh, expectation, you know, like an expectation, a sense of creativity, a sense of new beginnings, and so on. Whereas the evening is more of a kind of a withdrawal into a more of a, a, a more of an interiority or peace. But there is a peace that's present at both those times when nature takes a pause between night and day, just like we take a pause between the in and out breath, that um, one can take advantage of and begin to, it can become a, um, a sense of a felt presence that then one can discover in one's life other moments of the day. You know, it's, it is the, the presence. It's like a moment of grace from the over-self or from mm-hmm. the inner being, whatever we want to call it, that, that's available then. And so in a way, it's a kind of yoga. 
like they have the sunrise salutation as a major mm-hmm. form of yoga practice. And this is a way of doing it in sitting meditation where you, you open to the energies of the sun for purification, for healing, and also to awaken one's own sense of um, universal presence and a wish to give back towards others. You know, and uh, it's a chance to uh, share one's own inner sense of well-being through spiritual um, prayer and and um, offering Jeff, oneself. Yes, go ahead. Let's uh, uh, segue to uh, Paul Brunton. Um, he was he's uh, sadly and not well known uh, to enough people in my uh, experience and uh, which is why we want you on tell us about him and uh, what uh, you know especially drew you to him yes well i think you know i had well, you have to think back, right, to the late 60s and what kind of literature was available, um, what was the breadth of literature that was available. Um, there was still a lot of theosophy around. Um, there were you know, people like Edgar Casey. There was the beginnings of, um, well, of course, Yogananda had been in this country for a time, and there you know, beginnings interest in Indian spirituality. But it was um, P.B. who, in his series of books, I mean, many people know P.B. because of his search books. Yes, but, uh, India. tell us yeah. about them. And they think that, that, you know, that was really what P.B. contributed, was is here was this guy on a quest to learn something about the spirituality of India and then Egypt. But actually, he had he had some of the deepest experiences, spiritual experiences in his life when he was still in his teens. And um, in the short path to enlightenment, there is a, a place where he describes one of his earliest experiences of uh, where the sense of, of himself as a person disappears and he sort of has an experience of the void, the formless void, which is the ground of our being. You know, before anything appears, any kind of images or appearances of any kind. So he had this deep experience, and he had a number of experiences, I think, over a, quite a few months. And uh, he said that you know his spiritual experience that he describes in the Search and Secret India, there's a big one when he goes to Ramana Ashram. I assume yes. many of your mm-hmm. listeners are familiar with Ramana Maharshi. Yes, and if I can interrupt for a moment, uh, one of the things that's significant about Brunton is he, in the 30s, wrote about Ramana Maharshi and visited with him in Tiruvannamalai, and that's how yeah. many of people became aware of Ramana. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, if he had done nothing else in his life, you know, yeah, that would have right. been a lot to kind of write this for English readers, for the, you know, people in the West, and to bring um, Indian spirituality to the West <coughs> in such a, you know, I guess in such a, it was a, it was like a thunderbolt, I think, in the Western psyche for many people that had an opening to you know, what we call spirituality as opposed to, say, being tied to a specific religion. Um, it, it, it really, I think, opened people to what, human, you know, what was humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, in addition to Ramana, he also visited, um, the person who told him to go see Ramana Maharshi was 
um, Shankaracharya of Kanchi yeah. in, in uh, mm-hmm. India. And he himself, he lived much longer than Paul Brunton, but he uh, was also highly revered um, mm. as a, you know, a highly enlightened being. And many people from our group here went to visit uh, Shankaracharya, um, also because PB had, we call Paul Brunton PB, by the way. Mm. And he called himself that, actually, and he was fine with that, so I'm going to start saying PB here. Um, he sent people to, to see also Shankaracharya. But Paul Brunton, he wrote that book as like a skeptic Westerner interested in, well, what are these mysteries of the East I keep hearing about? Mm-hmm. And he, he, so he sort of hid the fact in his, he, he tried to write it as if somebody who was totally new to these things would be going to India on an extended trip to try to find out if there's any sense in what you know, the spirituality of India is about. I mean, you have to realize the British didn't think India actually had much to offer other right. than, a, you know, colonial, right. you know, as a colonial extension. Right, and uh, Brunton was British. And Brunton was British. And um, he also came to India at a time when the Indian uh, urge to freedom was rising, and Nehru was, I don't know if he was in power at the time that Ramana was, you know, and he and PB met, but they were very much wanting to move towards a, a more Western-style um, country. They felt that their spirituality had actually held them back. Mm. So, you know, people were suspicious of this person that's trying to, you know, promote Indian spirituality. Um, so the Search and Secret India book, it sold a lot, and it still sells. It's been in print constantly since, the mid-30s when it came out. It was published by Ryder in England, which is now part of Penguin Random House, you know, it's like the largest mm-hmm. publisher in the world. And also in America, his books were simultaneously published by mm-hmm. Dutton in New York. Uh, after the that book, he wrote a book called The Secret Path, which was, okay, well, you've read this Search and Secret India, now you're excited about the possibilities of spiritual development. So The Secret Path was a, a small book, but a lot of his ideas that he continued to develop later are still are in that book, and that also is a book that uh, you know writer in England continues to sell. And then he did the Egypt book, and that was something about, I think Paul Brunton was attracted to go to Egypt because he had his own a past there. You know, there's like, um, if you've read that book, there are scenes where he's kind of psychically recalling uh, experiences that he had there. And mm-hmm. then there's a, this dramatic night he spent in the Great Pyramid. He was in the pyramid all night long by himself. And he had a quite an interesting experience uh, out of the body and being visited on by some pharaoh-like spirits that, um, like, I mean, Pharaoh, like, um, what I'm trying to say is, uh, Egyptian priests is the right word mm-hmm. that guided him into, uh, some other parts of the pyramid that actually, interestingly, he described in some detail and only in this past year through some kinds of, you know, radio technology, you know, penetrating the pyramid, they discovered there's a, a chamber that is pretty much at the angle of and close to where PB was describing. Mm-hmm. 
um, a chamber that has not yet been discovered. So, um, why don't you ask me something? Yeah, Jeff, Jeff I wanted to, I, I did want to ask, uh, 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 PB, Paul Brunton, was a uh, theosophist. Uh, do the theosophists still exist? Are you a theosophist? Are the other board members theosophists? Did he stay no. one yes. his entire uh, uh, he uh, was, life? He was in England, you know, he grew up in Bloomsbury area. Mm -hmm. And is near the British Museum. And um, at that time, in the early 1900s, what we think of as spiritual practice and spiritual philosophies was very much entwined with occult and magic and witchcraft. Right. And witchcraft both black and white. And he had um, a teacher who was a member of the something Order of the Golden Dawn or whatever that Aleister Crowley was part of. And Aleister kind of apparently went down the dark path and, and Paul Brunton's friend, who was uh, Alan Bennett, is his name. He was actually one of the first people to become a Theravada monk. Um, he was very interested in magic, and they had a, you know, he had some kind of clairvoyant and occult powers. And so there was, in this milieu of London, there was a lot of interest in in spirituality and occultism, in Christian science and the science of, you know healing um, by mind, and uh, so it was just kind of the environment that he grew up in. Uh, you know, Blavatsky had come on the scene in the late 1800s, and there was a lot of literature available, and um, I think, you know, a lot of people that I'm friends with studied some theosophy, but we would, wouldn't consider ourselves theosophy. Mm -hmm. I would say that... Uh, Blavatsky was hard to understand in many respects. <laughs> mm -hmm. Try to read the Secret Doctrine, and she herself says that she clothed and hid a lot of um, the truths um, in ways that might have made it difficult to penetrate unless you had some kind of advanced. Well, unlike uh, Madame Blavatsky, Paul Brunton has always uh, impressed me as somebody, especially writing when he did. Um, who was able to explain the uh, core teachings, especially of Advaita Vedanta, and uh, in very crystal clear and easily understandable ways. Uh, and when I received uh, the book, The Short Path to Enlightenment, um, I was intrigued uh, because it's... Uh, Larson Publications, which yes. is dedicated to to um, the Brunton legacy, and, yes. and um, is um, put it together in a very well organized way, exclusively except for the introductory passages, uh, using passages uh, from Brunton's writings. Correct, and um, they read kind of like sutras. Uh, you know, for people familiar with that yeah. form, these sort of brief, short uh, statements. Tell us, uh, first of all, why the title? He he seemed to have distinguished short path from long path. Yes, that's true. And um, I met him in 1975, ah. and he introduced the short path teaching to me. Um, he might have talked to other, I'm sure he had talked to other people about it along the way, but it was one of the first times that he talked to anyone in our group about it. Um, I appreciate what you were saying uh, about 
the clarity and the way he produced, presented um, the teachings of the East. And I, I would like to just pause for a moment and say that after the search books and after that secret path book, he went to write three books that were really significant, The Quest of the Overself, The Hidden Teaching Beyond Yoga, and The Wisdom of the Overself. And those three books really do what you are saying, and I would say even more. You know, they go a little bit beyond because his, his roots were not just in Advaita Vedanta, but also he had teachings from uh, the Buddhist side as well. Mm. Mm. And uh, he refers to a Mongolian that he met in Angkor Wat and who um, gave him some keys to understanding uh, non-duality in the form that PB has presented it as mentalism. So those, these books he wrote all in the 30s and early 40s. And then after that, except he published a book called The Spiritual Crisis of Man in 1952, which was more like the crisis in humanity and what needs to be done to help solve it, which is still very applicable to today. But after that, he only wrote, as you say, in this sutra form. And he left... The reason for the foundation, is, in a way, is to preserve and publish and uh, promote his writings, but with particular focus on what we call the, um, the unpublished writings. And those uh, Larson publications, as you mentioned, um, made a big uh, contribution um, to the preservation of Paul Brunton's teaching by publishing the 16-volume set called The Notebooks of Paul Brunton. And in those he covers a whole range of spiritual life. Uh, that's one thing I think is rather remarkable about Paul Brunton, is he really tried to serve the entire development of a human being, from what you call the long path to the short path, and, and in a way a little beyond. So these, this book, The Short Path to Enlightenment, Instructions for Spiritual Immediate Awakening, is is called from the notebooks of Paul Brunton. And they are scattered. Um, they're concentrated in a few of the volumes, but they're kind of scattered throughout. And um, myself and one other person, well, this other person, Mark Scarell, who's one of the editors on the book, he compiled about 75% of the book, and I did about 25%. But it was... The notebooks of Paul Brunton are in the 28 categories that Paul Brunton devised that cover all, all aspects of life. You can, you can find out about it on our website if you're interested. <laughs> and um, those were, his, he left 25,000 pages of these kind of writings, these short paras, um, some short, some longer, and our group here, he left it basically to our group to go through and arrange and decide what was to be published. And the 16 volumes is what came out of it, but that was about a third of it. Mm -hmm. And um, so <clears throat> because the short path is such a um, current topic in spiritual circles, you know, we could yes. name probably dozens, you probably could name beyond what yes. I could name. Dozens and dozens of people that are teaching direct path or short path yes. teachings. And, and, and often in the name of uh, Advaita or non-dual, mm -hmm. yes. uh, non-duality. That, that language, yes. yes. Um, so 
PB's presentation of the short path is similar in many ways. Uh, let's talk about it a little bit. What you know? When you when are we on the long path and when are we on the short path, or something like that? <laughs> I mean, many people probably think, oh, the long path—that's for losers. Or, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> misguided. You know, spirituality is more direct than that, and we don't have to, you know, dawdle around with our egos and try to dress us up in better clothes or whatever. But the fact is, the the long, I I don't know, when I first got interested in spiritual development, I thought in terms of, well, I've got to improve myself. I'm kind of a schleppy guy. If I compare myself to, you know, they talk about imitation of Christ or in different kinds of teachings, if you compare yourself with the nature of a sage, well, these those guys are, they seem to have it all together, and I don't really seem to have that. And it seems like, I'm, according to the teachings, I need to do some work. I mean, in yoga, you have the yamas and the niyamas, the things you need to cultivate and the things you need to, you know, lessen or get rid of, um, various character traits and so on. And I think a sense of, well, uh, some kind of self-mastery is going to be required here before God's going to come and knock on my door and accept me into his kingdom, if you know what I'm saying. So the long path practices are really about developing ability to concentrate, to understand, and to purify one's character. Um, Purifying character really, to me, is about all the things that about each of us that will distract us from the goal, as right, it were. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I could throw out one thing, Jeff, because yeah, jump, we're a little jump. constrained on time, it's gone fast. But uh, my experience has been, uh, it's almost a marketing thing, the short path, because in virtually every case I've seen where it's been presented as a short path, both my own experience in spirituality and, and those of uh, friends and others uh, that I know have uh, pursued various paths, the short path always turns into a long path. <laughs> it's like, yes, yeah. this is the short path, but, you know, uh, I, I haven't seen anyone uh, actually go on a short path and, and be finished with or, or, or uh, accomplish what they set out to accomplish quickly. It always turns into yeah. a long path. So, again, I, I, I think uh, sometimes that's done uh, because the Western mind wants a quick fi- fix, and uh, yeah. so it's presented that way. Yes. Well, that's true. The quick fix thing appeals to us, and but I think Paul Brunton entered. In, you know, he saw that the the work that we could do on ourselves, on our persons, let's say, or even in a if we have a bigger idea of ourselves as an individual evolving through time, right, through lives. Right. But you know, life to life, you you take on something and you do whatever. You learn certain lessons and and. Um, and this is kind of like building up our individuality. PB has great respect for the development of individuality. And um, it's enlightenment, he says, that doesn't destroy your individuality. You're not going to like merge like a salt doll in the ocean. Um, the individuality is something that continues, but it becomes a servant rather than mm-hmm. the ruler, you know, in your, in your life. Um, but to, and another thing he'll say is, is that it's in the Short Path book that how do you expect the divine um, with its power and possibilities to work through you as a clear channel as long as you have, you're clogged with various kinds of 
issues and problems and you know distractions, however you want to put it. Um, it just it's just a bad fit. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me in looking at um, the book uh, I, that he by short path he meant there are direct ways to experience the yeah. the self or yeah. what he called the over self uh the uh transcendent uh um the ultimate reality the, that yes. we are yes. um and at the same time he also i was impressed to see pointed out that um in many cases if not most uh, the expectation of uh, instantaneous enlightenment leads to trouble, and and that um, the that the long path is what what he called the long path is essential for preparation for the short path. Yes, <laughs> and, and that makes perfect sense to me because I see right. So right. many people going to these uh, seminars of Advaita Vedanta and being told they can, you know, just dispense with all the, you know, periods of long periods of practice and and so forth. Um, but it seems to me that the the people for whom those methods uh, or that approach really works are people who have been on a path for a long time. Yes, who are already mature one That's way or another. Right, 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 right. Have a certain maturity. But the th- the thing about the long path, I think, is is that um, the ego can disguise itself. Mm. It, it, let's say you can think, well, you know, I really need some more teachings on this or that, or you, you know, there's different things uh, one can do to improve oneself psychologically, to have more under, you know, better understanding of one's constitution and. Um, you know, heal our problems, and we can think, well, until I really take care of all these issues, I'm really not going to be able to devote energy to, for some people, even to meditate, you know, right. but mm-hmm. but, um, but to, try, to try to do any kind of transcendent gesture in my life. And so it's kind of an addiction, you know, like, uh, you could still kind of be drawn into the bookstore that the, the next book, you know, the next right, the next guru who has something uh-huh. to yeah, offer yeah. that you hadn't thought mm-hmm. of. You know, I was just reading about somebody who has like a special breathing exercise that's really supposed to open you up, and so it can become uh, a kind of addictive problem like any other kind of addiction. Yeah, you know, right. addicted right. to self-development. But at some point, if you're really sincere about the quest to achieve, let's say, enlightenment, if you want to use that word, you, you might get a sense like you're just kind of stumbling over yourself all the time, that you're you're kind of in the way of what you want to get to. You, you know, you become right. your own worst problem, as it were. And that um, that's where PB says you have to turn around 180 degrees and face the over-self directly. Mm. turn away from the ego, turn away from concern with mm-hmm. the ego, and concentrate your on you know the remembrance of the over-self, which I'm talking about over-self as the universal principle mm-hmm. in us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could think of it, I sometimes think of it not as the higher self, but what's over any kind of individual self. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that principle which is like, 
some call it the soul, universal soul, universal mm-hmm. presence. Um, but attending to that, and both in our study, in our devotions, in our um, in these exercises of remembrance, or the other one, PB talks about the as if exercise. Mm-hmm. It's a it's done as a way of turning away from involvement in one's finite being towards the the part that's actually missing consciously for us, mm-hmm. which is our, our fundamental being, not our becoming. Right. Right. We're so involved with our becoming that we don't really take time for the being mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. And I think when PB, well, actually, uh, the publisher came up with this subtitle, Instructions for Immediate Awakening, uh, PB does say in here at several places that you could get a glimpse of your real nature at mm-hmm. any time. Right. And, and doing short path practices enhances, let's say statistically, if we can talk that way, yeah. enhances improves the, the odds. Improves right. the odds. If you, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. what you're searching for, what you're really focused on, just like in any endeavor in life, right. whatever you're pouring your energy into is more likely to come about than just something out of left field that you didn't like think about at all. So I, I think that the, the, the point is, is these are the instructions to have an immediate, at least a glimpse. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and glimpses are really important. I think it's a, becoming a more common term in spiritual circles, yeah. Yeah. a glimpse rather than a permanent right. change of station. Um, and we should point out, uh, because we have to wrap it up, that um, there are exercises in the uh, book, in mm-hmm. uh, The Short Path to Enlightenment, and um, it, it, it is more practical, frankly, than I anticipated it would be. Um, and I was pleased to see that, um, uh, because in, in certain non-dual circles, there's a, a kind of disparagement of actual practice. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a PB if I yes. may, yes. Uh, was not in that, cat, in that right. group. Right, not at all. Just the opposite. And, you know, he, in contradistinction to Advaita, he would never say the world's an illusion. Right. Mm-hmm. He's saying that the world is not understood to be what it is, which is a non-dual appearance within, you know, within reality. Mm-hmm. Which one could argue is the right interpretation of Advaita. Yes, yes, of right. course. <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. But That's we did, uh, we should wrap it up. I, I, okay. Thank you so very much for your time. Paul, we'd love to have you back on because I think we could, I, I could easily go on with you for a couple more hours. Uh, yeah, and, uh, I, I sense that too. Yeah. It does seem a bit brief. Yeah, yeah. so it's a, but that, that's always a good sign when it goes quickly. Uh, but uh, So you have to promise we shall come back on again sometime in the, in the, in the next few months. And, we could, uh, and we've done this with others where we've done part one, part two. Yeah, maybe even part okay, three. Sure, so, uh, and we should let people know that it's it's quite easy to learn more about Paul Brunton online. At there's uh, paulbrunton.org, and there's Larson Publications, and um, and and the book, The Short Path to Enlightenment: Instructions for Immediate Awakening. Paul Brunton, and uh, yeah, a terrific website, paulbrunton.org, not dot com, but b u be, well, we'll have it all posted up. B-R-U-N-T-O-N, uh, Philosophical Good. Foundation. Well, so, thanks, right. for, thanks for this, Jeff, and for um, bringing our listeners' attention to Paul Brunton, who deserves to be better known. Yes, thank you very much for great, your time. Great, great. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Take mm. care. Bye. Bye.